We want to thank you for those who prayed for us this past week. Um, we had a conference here of people who were invited from seven or eight states. Uh, some came from Africa. And we did a, a conference here on leadership multiplication for really the primary people who are part of the organization I'm with. Uh, Patricia and I were training them. These are all people who have been in ministry 20, 30 years, pastors, missionaries. We had the privilege of taking them into the uniqueness of the academy. And in fact, uh, uh, Nate and Abby are here who will be going to Indonesia from this church where we invited them. Um, it was basically we tried not to advertise because it was an experiment. We started small and our goal was that we would see 10 countries adopted to take the academy in terms of multiplying leaders to reach their countries for Christ. And uh, thank you so much for praying because God far exceeded our expectations. We actually had 21 people groups adopted in 17 countries. And that is great praise to God. The same score of the Super Bowl. That was our Super Bowl. Uh, 21 people groups in 17 nations. That means they adopted a country for three years to go in, turn all the training over to the local people, and then multiply again other leaders to do the same. And our goal is to be in the 50, 60 countries here. And uh, actually the people from GTN are already in 50 to 60 of them. But it was, it was an incredible thing, uh, incredible time. And... Uh, that's the kind of God we have. And so I would say is that he exceeded my faith and my expectations. Which just shows us that, uh, you know, my faith needs a little kick, and, kick up in, in the gear here. So thank you so much for praying for that. And, you know, on Tuesday night we celebrate, or Tuesday we celebrate Valentine's. Now, who here knows the story of Valentine? Some of you undoubtedly have heard something from church history. Well, he was a man who lived in uh, the 200s. He was a priest in Rome, and uh, in, in, he became famous in, on February 14th in 270 A.D. You see, Claudius II, the emperor of Rome, had issued an edict that there would be no more weddings, no more marriages. They were running short on soldiers, so he was conscripting all the young men and saying, you can't get married, so you're going to become a soldier. Well, this priest named Valentine decided he wasn't going to honor that because he was a believer. And so in the underground church, which was Christians were very much persecuted in those days, he began to marry uh, people in the underground church, young Christians. Well, he was captured. He was taken to prison. And uh, there are many legends about what happened. We don't know for sure. In fact, some say there were two Valentines. Most people agree the two Valentines were actually one guy. And in... in uh, 270 A.D., um, while he was in prison, it said that he would send notes to Christians and they'd sneak them out through the windows and the bars. Uh, and he would sign it, Valentine. Uh, the, the other part of the legend goes that he actually became enamored with the jailer's daughter. And since he was not allowed to have books or anything, he found scraps of paper and he made little notes and sent them to her. And supposedly the last one that was, was sent was on February 14th of 270 he put, your Valentine. The reason that was his last one is that he was beheaded for his faith on that day. He was killed as a Christian. And so when you think about Valentine's Day, and for us it's ruffles and candy and all those nice things, and I'm sure, guys, you already have it well planned what you're going to do. You already have your card, your candy, your flowers, and all those things, right? I'm sorry, I should have done it. And, uh, but to keep in mind that a man laid down his life for Christ, 
And in 496, in, uh, on February 14th, the new emperor by now Christianity was legal in Rome. They made, from 496 on, they honored his name. Valentine's Day is that old. It wasn't invented by Hallmark, okay? <laughs> it's been around a long time because he laid down his life, which helps us for today, as we talk about, here was a man who knew why he was here. He knew why he was here so much, he was willing to give his life for the one he was here for. And this morning we're talking about how to help families flourish. And if you notice in your outline, it's a little simple outline. And if you notice on the left-hand side, it simply has got three letters. It spells the word MAP, M-A-P. Now, I don't do that very often. I don't do you know, acrostics very often. But maybe today this will help us navigate the waters of the future of our families, regardless of where we've been. It determines where we're going. And we want to start off with the question, why? Why are we here? Not just what are we supposed to do, but why? And you know, we began our conference on Monday of last week. We started with the question, why? We spent an hour and a half on just answering. These are men and women from all around America and churches, but guys primarily who go around and already have the answer as to why we're here. But we began to discuss that. The conference was about multiplying leaders, but we didn't, but that said, that's not why we're here. That's how we do. That's what we do. The why is we are here because, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, we're here to love God, glorify God, and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But in that, to understand what that means, we have to have the last words of Jesus who said what? Make disciples of all nations. You cannot glorify God if that's not part of it. And so every person who follows the name of Christ, we've been talking about this over the past weeks, God has left all of us with the same why. Why are we here? To glorify Him and enjoy Him forever by making disciples of all the nations, of the people around us and beyond. That's why we're here. And if I were to ask you, as we come and we talk about our families, what does that look like? What's the why of your family today? What is the why? Because it will determine the direction and the outcome of our future. I'd like you to join with me by reading the very first verse from Colossians 3. Would you join me, please? It says, Work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, and the master you are serving is Christ. But if you do what is wrong, you will be paid back for the wrong you have done, for God has no favorites. What is that passage saying to us? Well, first of all, it says we're here for Jesus. It says whatever you do, work willingly. Some passages say work at it with all your heart. Do it willingly with all you've got. For you're working for the Lord rather than people. So why are we here? We're here for Jesus. For what? Well, notice it says we're here for Jesus for whatever we do. It doesn't matter. It means whether we're at home, whether we're going to work, whether we're working out at our exercise club, whether we're in the neighborhood, or our kids are playing soccer, it really doesn't matter. He just says, whatever you do, do it for the Lord. That's why we're here. We're here for Him. And so as we look at the, 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 the why for our families, what does this say? This gives us our vision for life. This gives us our direction. This gives us our mission. We're a journey. We're on a journey to, to, the, to the fulfillment of God's mission for our life. So if I said this morning, what is your family's mission? And how does it begin to dovetail with God's? 
because this is why we're here. As I said, we started the conference with that question. We were there all about leadership multiplication, but that's not the real issue. The real issue is we're here for God, for His purposes. We're here to make disciples of all nations, and how we do it is by multiplying leaders. On Friday after the conference was done, I was in, I'm part of another group with another denomination, and uh, there's five areas they're working on for all their churches and all across America, and they asked me to be one who heads up one of these five areas. And uh, one of the suggestions was, was we try to bring these to the churches, why don't we take them one at a time? I said, that's a good idea. Yeah, you can't do them all at once. You know, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, right? I said, but as we talked, I said, here's the key, which one? Because which one you pick first determines everything else that happens. And so what we were really talking about is why are we here? To do the same thing. We're here to make disciples of all the nations. Whatever else the churches do, that's number one. That affects everything else that we do. We uh, got a note from our uh, daughter-in-law the other day. And uh, they had just moved out here from New Jersey in November. And the note was saying that Annika has caught up in her classes because the particular course, the one of them in, in New Jersey, they were a little behind what California was doing. And she was so exciting. And she said, you know, Mommy, I really want to make good grades so I can get into college. She's eight, by the way. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, her mother, her father's a PhD and her mother's a medical doctor. So I guess they've started that early on. You know, that's a nice goal. But it's not why we're here. Now, college education may be a tool that we use to help us fulfill why we're here. And why we're here for your family and mine is not to get a good job, live happily ever after, or even to have a good family. That's not why we're here. In fact, if you were to ask the average American family, why are we here? You, you would get all kinds of answers. If we were to ask, what's the purpose of marriage? We, we get all kinds of that. In fact, what do most people say? Why do we get married? Because I want to be happy. Right? That's the American way. Well, happy is a wonderful byproduct, but it's not the reason for anything. That's guaranteed misery is if you get married to be happy, watch out. That's not the one you want, okay? You may be happy, but it's not because that's your goal. It's a result. And so why are we here? And if I were to ask you in your family, what kind of a why motivates you? What kind of a mission would you want to be part of? What is it that would get you up early, keep you up late? And are families capable of that? Why are we here? That question determines how we live. Well, this passage says we're here not to glorify God, but to serve Him in all we do. That means the why at home is we're here to serve Jesus together in the family. That means when we go to work, we're there to serve Jesus regardless of what we do. You say, but how's that happen? We've talked about that over the weeks. And here in the neighborhood, why are we here? We're here for Jesus. And why do we have our 401ks and what are we going to do in retirement? We're here to serve Jesus. That's why we're here. That's God-given why. And so the question is, how is our family moving in that direction? And if I were to ask you, does that change your focus? If not, you and I are merely tossed by the winds of pressure and the herd mentality that lives around us. And if we simply give in to the pressures of life and the herd mentality, we've wasted our lives. What a sad thing. 
Millions of people busy, rushing, doing incredible things, wasting their lives. If we don't understand the why we're here. John, uh, when he was, spoke, he put up the tree here. Many of you have written names of people you're praying for to, to, to come to Christ. We said a few weeks ago, what if the goal was everybody here at ABF's goal this year is to win one to Jesus? Would that change your world and how you look at it? If you knew that you're, uh, the goal of all of us is to win one. And by the way, that's what we're praying about. Every one of us, if we lead one to Jesus, what could happen? You keep doing that year after year. Would that change your focus? Would that change the way you go to work? Would that change the way you let your kids play with friends? Yeah, we would let them play with pagans. But with a purpose. We love them. We pray for them. <laughs> what would that do in the Bible studies and the men's groups as we've talked about? It changes my focus. Even just win one. It would turn. This is what's happening around the world, folks. This is why God's doing such powerful things. Because why? We're here. It's not just for us. It's not for our plans. It's not just to get a good education, have a great job, have a happy retirement, and whatever else comes after that. We are here for Him. That's the why, and that begins to shape everything. If you look through Scripture, do you see that? Yeah, just, go, just start with some of the great characters. Moses, why was he here? Well, he was, he was put in a little basket. He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He grew up with a silver spoon. Had a bad day at the office, killed a man. Now he's on the backside of the desert. And he didn't, just when he thought life was over, God reminded him of his why. You're the redeemer of this nation. I put you here for a purpose, in a political role. And then there was David the shepherd boy out strumming his harp, fighting off lions and bears. And, and God says, that's the man I want to lead my people. Why was he here? For his own good? For his own happiness? No, to lead his people. And he did it. No king like him in the history of Israel with all of his flaws and fears. Did he know why he was there? He did. And then there was Daniel, the young teenager who was taken off into captivity, no choice of his own. He didn't go to the, get to go to the school he wanted. He didn't get to keep the same friends except for a few of them. He didn't get to choose his career. It was all forced on him. But he knew why he was there. And he outlived four dynasties and he counseled every one of them because he knew why he was there. He knew who he belonged to. And then there was Ruth. Remember her, the Moabitess, the foreigner? And she lost her husband and her father-in-law and she went back to the land with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Why was she there? She was there for somebody else, not herself. And she was there not only for that person, but for that person's God. And she came to love that person's God, Naomi's God. And she became in the lineage of the Messiah because she understood why she was there. And then there was Mary, the teenage girl that we all know about who had an announcement from the angel. She obviously had a heart pointed toward God from the very beginning. And God says, I want you to be the mother of the Messiah. And what was Mary's why? It was what the assignment that God gave her to be a mother, to raise the Son of God. You see, why, folks, determines everything. And you and I need to be asking our why every day and every week. And when does a family get together and say, why are we here? And is the why big enough? Is it exciting enough? Is it challenging enough to motivate us? You know, it's interesting because I want to drop a few names for a moment. And you probably know who they are. The first one was in a little rural town of Arkansas. And he started a little store to serve the community. He just started small. And his goal was to serve his customers, to serve his employees, 
and to serve the community and to make it better. Well, Sam's little deal kind of grew to become the 36th largest economy in the world. You call it what? Walmart. But you see, he knew why he was there. It wasn't to make money. It wasn't to grow this big thing. It was to serve and to serve and to serve. And after he died, the company forgot the why. And all the lawsuits and all the big, bad, and uglies they are now has followed pretty much the death of Sam because they got forgot the why. You know what happens when you forget the why? You focus on the how and the what. People say, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? That's not the question. The first question is, why are we here? That determines everything else. And then there was Bill. You know, Bill started this little thing. And the reason he started it is that he wanted to give tools to people to make their life more productive so no matter what their lot, no matter where they came from, they could achieve their full potential. That was the why. You know it as what? Microsoft. You know, and after Bill left, he stayed for a while, and he did, the, the, you know, the, the Gates Foundation. They've lost their way too, and now it's become just more and more to make money because they forgot the why of why they were there. And you know, it goes to the two Steves. Remember those guys? Steve who? Jobs and Wozniak. And why did they get started? Do you know what it was? It was to go after the big boys, to give tools so that the individual could do the same work as corporations through technology. Yeah, they were the bad boys, a little bit of rebel in there, but they knew their why. And after Jobs was kicked out and he came back later, he took them right back to their why because they had lost it. You know, I could go on and on. Starbucks, same thing. It didn't start just to sell coffee. It was to give people an experience. But also Schultz had a father who worked his whole life in jobs where he didn't have medical attention. They couldn't afford medical insurance. And his dad died a premature death because of physical conditions. And he thought, I'd like to create a place where my dad could have worked and he would have had dignity in the way they treated their employees. In fact, all of these companies we're talking about, look at, notice how they treated their employees. And you could go to Costco and all the rest. But here's one thing they all have in common. They all forgot why. And now the problems have begun. And God says to you and me, go back to the why. Because once we get away from the why, it's going to be, how do we do it? And what do we do next? And God says, come back to him. You know, I went to a college for two years before they relieved me of my duties. And their motto was, I remember seeing it, it was right up on the crest, for Christ and his kingdom. Now, I didn't know what that meant, but you know, I remember that. And I think they believed it. And it had something to do with where they were going. I read a book recently, and you might guess the name of it is Start With Why. Written by a Jewish guy named Simon Sinek. I thought I was reading a Christian commentary all the way through. The story after story. In fact, when I first read I said, Jesus, this is, I was so excited because I've been working on these kinds of things for years, and it didn't really come from a Christian. It came from a guy who's, who's, a, who's near to God, but he's not quite there. And just exploded in my heart and mind. That's exactly what the Gospels are about. That's what all the Scripture is. And it's the way you and I stay on track. So question, what is your family why? Where does Jesus fit into it? I don't care if your kids are grown and gone. I don't care if they're little. Where are we working on the why? And some of you have heard me tell this story before as, as a, really an accident in my late 30s. I was challenged to write a life mission statement. And with Louise Palau, and, uh, who was one of my elders at the time, and uh, 
And uh, he challenged us, and I wrote something that went like this. I was a pastor at the time, so it was slanted that way. But if I'd been a businessman, it would have been close to this, or a coach. I said, I want to love, honor, and serve Jesus Christ and my family in the power of the Holy Spirit so that believers are built up. The unchurched pre-believers are reached. They meet Jesus. Thirdly, is that leaders are multiplied and developed. And fourthly, churches are planted worldwide. I didn't even know what it meant. <laughs> I had no idea. But if you have a clear picture of why, that why will make your life. And I can't encourage any of us enough to spend time with your why. And ask yourself as a family, what's the direction we're heading in? Because it determines the future of every one of us here now. One of the things we do at our conference is we teach everyone, and think of indigenous leaders now, where the culture say they don't make any plans, how to write a one-year plan for their relationship with Jesus. That's all. Vision statement, scripture, some action steps, when they're going to review it, and who they're going to partner with. It changes their lives. In fact, most Americans, pastors, don't have one of those. Because it's a focus on the why, why we're here. And so mission is where every family begins. Can you answer the why today? Jesus says it's all about him. And how close can we get to that? The second part of it is this. What's the atmosphere of your home? If somebody walked into your home, what kind of atmosphere would they discover? Would they discover joy? Would they discover encouragement? Would they discover peace? Would there be this sense of direction? Would it be a faith-filled home? How would love be manifested? In fact, let me ask this. What kind of atmosphere do you want to live in? What kind of home do you want to live in? We get so busy, and if we don't answer the why, it's going to slop right over into the atmosphere, and we end up with far less than we wanted it to be. There's a verse that's long grabbed me. It's in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. It's in your outline. And depending on your translation, Paul was talking about religious things and what matters and what doesn't. And then he says this, the only thing that counts or, or what is important is faith expressing itself through love. You have just given the dimension of Christianity. Faith in a certain person, the true God, expressing itself through love. That's powerful. And if I were to say, what kind of atmosphere in your home? What do you want to live in? Would you love to live in a home that's filled with faith and genuine God kind of Jesus love? Wouldn't that be incredible? That's possible. That's our option. Is that our goal? Let's start with faith for a moment. What kind of faith in the home? Have we seen in our own homes faith that can move some mountains? You know what a mountain is in the Bible? It's an obstacle. It's a spiritual block. Do we want to see faith that borders on the impossible? That trusts God for more than we can trust Him for? How about a faith that will not quit no matter how tough it gets? And you see, that's so important, folks, because the American family is blowing apart at unprecedented rate. It's blowing apart. What's going to hold it together? Is there a faith that there's a God big enough if we give Him an opportunity? And you know what? When you think about it, Confidence, faith is confidence in God's character. See, faith is not a, a faith in something fuzzy out there. It's not, do I believe enough? It's, who am I trusting? That's what it's about. Who am I trusting? 
And do I have enough confidence in him to pour my, to lay my whole life in his hands? That's what it's about. Do I really believe God will come through? Does God know more about business than you and I do? Does he know more about the family? Does he know more about your hurts? Does he know more about your secrets? Does he know more about the challenges we face than we do? That's what it comes down to. Are we trying to control our little world instead of releasing it to him? There are some families who have mistaken thinking a good Christian home is about control. See, one day kids grow up and make their own choices. It's all about releasing them to God's control. Do we believe that there's a God big enough to raise our kids if we let them experiment? If we send them out of our little safety box, there's a place for the safety box. You bet there is. But when do they get out of it? What kind of faith do we have? What kind of confidence do we have in God? You know, faith builds up. In fact, if I were to say to you, give me some faith builders, what has built your faith to date to get you to this place? What are some things God's used in your life to build your faith? What would you say? <laughs> Who said pain? Okay. Yeah, very definitely. I heard another one. Trials. Yeah. Challenges. Isn't that interesting? What else? Okay, financial crisis. Illness. Okay, those are all some of the, the painful parts. He does that. And I, I put the same thing. Challenges. Great challenges. Bigger than me. Another one is setting goals that go beyond my ability. Another one that's helped me is, are the promises of God. He's already told me what he's going to do in the future. I don't need to have great faith just to say, okay, God, you say you're going to do this. I'm clinging to that one for all I've got. The promises of God. What else that's, that you do on a regular basis? Pray. We've all seen answers to prayer does a tremendous thing in, in building our, our faith. Here's another one. Praising God's character when you don't feel like it, you don't see any results, and your heart's broken. Hebrews 13 says what? Offer to him a sacrifice of praise. Have you done that recently? Every day of our lives, we're to offer him a sacrifice. Who prays? Let's praise God for his character. And you can say, God, life hurts, it stinks, but I praise you because you're bigger than all this. You're the gracious one. On and on and on. So we praise him. It's one of the ways that builds faith. Another one is, how about models of faith? Are we hanging around anybody that trusts God? Do you see it in your homes? Yes, models of faith build faith. I was fortunate to have a mentor that hopefully I caught just a little bit of his faith. He trusted God for enormous things. He trusted him for a whole country and then for nations. Maybe if I caught just a little bit of that, hopefully it came from him. And then how about stories? You hear of stories of faith. Expose your kids, your family, yourself every day to stories of people who are putting their trust in God. This is one I love. This one's called On This Day in Christian History. That's where I got the Valentine's thing from Robert Morgan. There's several of these. Just go online and get it. Great stories every day of people of faith throughout history. And watch what God does. The second one is love. Now, if I were to ask you this question, why does God give you, if you're married, why does God give you your husband and your wife? You ever thought about that? What do you think? Why did God give them? Who said it was a joke? I know God has a sense of humor, but why does God give you your husband or your wife? Well, you know what? Very close. So we can practice loving them. Yeah. Did you know God gives you your husband or wife to make you more like Jesus? He gives you to them, whether they're sandpaper personality or, or peachy smooth, it really doesn't matter to make us more like him. How do we respond to their imperfections? 
Do we become more like Jesus? That's why he gave them. See, there are no perfect marriages. And some of you got the better end of the deal and some of you didn't. Sorry, but that, that was supposed to be a joke. And, but that's just the truth, is it not? And God uses them. He say, but you don't know my marriage. And I'll get to that in a moment. What do you do when some of them appear to be unreachable out there? But the reason we know this is true, and I could just go to 1 Corinthians 7 if you want to know the biblical basis for all this and read it. Is there, he talks about, if the unbelieving mate, husband or wife, wants to stay in the marriage with a Christian, he says, let them stay. He even talks about the kids being sanctified, and that's a whole other thing. What is that about? God's saying, let them stay. They're going to learn about Christ, and you're there to become more like Jesus in how you relate to them. Now, they didn't tell you that when we got married, right? We got married because we want to be happy, right? And we want someone else to make us feel good. We want somebody else to meet our needs. Yeah, and hopefully that happens. I mean, that's one of the great benefits. But you see, God gave it for different reasons. And when you see your mate in all their rough edges, you're basically looking into the mirror and seeing the fact, and some people can't see it. We also have just as many weaknesses as they do, just different areas. And so God gave us a mirror in our mates, in our children, because he had a sense of humor. And what does it mean to love? We've said this many times. Love is seeking and doing God's best for another person. How did I get that definition? That's just what Jesus did. He sought us, and then to give us God's best. Not what we think is best, but God's best. And you see, just, because, just, just as faith builds up, love heals and it does a lot more. Love launches. Love gives its own sort of confidence. And becomes down to serving. So if love in your life that God's looking for is, how are you serving your own family? Some of you are doing a great job. Usually mom and wives give far more. They're the givers. They're the generous ones in the family. And men, we need to catch up dramatically. Because guess who we report to one day on how we've loved our families? Jesus himself will give an account. For our words, for our actions, for our initiation. Oh, but I didn't have a spiritual interest. God says, that's not the point. I asked you to lead spiritually. So catch up. Start. He doesn't chastise anybody for attempting and failing. He only chastises those who made no attempt. He meets us right where we are. And then he says, serve. And in fact, when you walk in the house, is it an encouragement or a downer? Men or women. What do we bring home? Yes, we all need a place where we can vent and we can be real deal and not fake it and have somebody love us. But what are we bringing in? See, that's why God put us there. And if all I do is come home and dump and, and I'm used to people, whatever, I'm killing the love of my home. And most marriages are killed by neglect. And then our hearts go somewhere else because we forget the why. And then also he says, what kind of a friend are you in the home? Best marriages we are made up of what? We said it many times, best friends. So how am I becoming the kind of friend my husband or wife needs? But we all have to admit, you know, there's such a thing as love busters. See, some marriage has been almost squashed and killed, including in churches, because love has been neglected. And the harshness, the critical spirit the blah, 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 that's been going on for years begins to stamp it out. I've had a guy came to me once and he says, my wife left me, I don't even know why. That was the problem, folks. He didn't even know why. He just assumed he could go on living that way and they'd take it. 
And finally she said, I can't take it anymore. They're love busters. And the number one love buster in all research, you know, you've read the whole thing that 50% of divorces are about money. I'd say no, that, that may be true, money's involved. But most marriages ending and children leaving the faith are because of one or two things, but one of them is this, it's anger in a family. Before you think about anger, just for a moment, there's two ways anger is expressed. One is to clam up and withdraw, cold war, or then there's a hot war, it's the blasting away. Both of them are destructive. Both of them are destructive and they kill relationships. In fact, there's a man named John Gottman who's written a book and it's called, uh, I believe it's called Seven Ways, Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. But he discovered his research, he's in Denver, said that he could tell as a counselor within three minutes over 90% accuracy whether a couple would divorce or not if they came for marital counseling. He could watch it. He said the first three minutes told me with 90% accuracy. You know what it was? What we're talking about. Here's what he identified. He says the warning signs of any marriage are the harsh startup, just a harsh boom, 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 over and over. Then he calls the second thing, he calls, he calls the four fouls, criticism, defensiveness, contempt, stonewalling. You know what stonewalling is? It's just kind of the overbearingness and then flooding. Flooding is not ever, you know, it's just put them down and keeps going, keeps going after them rather than face our own problem. Body language, you know, those kinds of things, the, the sarcasm. Failed repair attempts. One of them keeps trying, it won't work. And then bad memories because it won't go away. That's a prescription for disaster. And it floods our churches and our homes in America. And some people who do a good job at church, but do a lousy one at home. And God is saying, invite Jesus into those areas. Because most people with their anger issues, they don't start with a the marriage. They go way back to issues that have never been dealt with by little boys and their dads and their moms. Most often, the women too. Love busters. Another one is fear. Fears, by the way, most anger is fear. I don't have a time to go there today. But fear becomes control. And so we try to squeeze everybody and see if we can control it. That's nothing but a manifestation of fear. The more control it is, it's not faith. It's not walking in the grace of God. It's fear. It's lack of faith. And God says, give that to me. What do we do when love's been violated? Love needs boundaries. By the way, does God give us boundaries? If we step over, there will be consequences. You see, I've seen, I've seen marriages destroyed because there were no boundaries. The abuse went on. And people were too afraid to speak up or they waited too long to speak up. I've seen teenage kids and younger just go bonkers because there were not boundaries. Mom and dad kept giving in. I've seen marriages that were gone and disastrous saved by boundaries. They said, you know, we're not going to do that. No, until you get help, we're not getting back together again. No, we're not going to get back together until there's been counseling and we see these signs. And we see them every time. And if you raise your voice, I'm leaving again. And on and on, there are boundaries. I've seen marriages rescued over and over by boundaries. I've seen teenage kids who went bananas turned around by the boundaries. Sorry, that happens once and you're gone. I love you so much. It's done in love. But the boundaries are God's expression of ways to get through to some people who will not be reached until there are boundaries that are established. And somehow we think, oh, that's not love. Are you kidding? It's, the, it's exactly what love is. It's exactly what love is. Love will set boundaries. It will stand up and is willing to release in order to have God give a greater gain later on.
And thirdly and finally, we've got a mission. There's an atmosphere. Is it full of love? Is it full of faith? And is it full of faith and love in the tough times? Pretty much anybody can do it in the good times. But what do we do when we just sense, God, I don't have it? And the fourth, or third part of our map is power. Power. The need for power. And the way it begins, the way we get power is we have to admit our limitations. Talking to a couple of our guys after the first service. And just talking about they're, they're in a phase of their life where things are beginning to crumble, though their, their lives on the outward is, are doing very well. And God is gracious to them to let them see that the life that's been underneath for all these years isn't going to hold up. And God loves them so much, He's letting them see it, and they're seeing it clearer. And they're admitting, I, I, I have a need. I have a need for brothers. I have a need for Christ. I have a need to be known what's really happening in my life. That's the grace of God. And power doesn't begin until we face our limitations. And then you say, power for what? And as we answer that, well, let me ask you this question. Where do you have power outages? At home or in your personal life? Where are they? Let's read this verse together from 2 Corinthians 3.5. I love this. It's not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. The NIV there says, not that we are adequate to consider anything as coming from ourselves. Another translation says, not that we are competent, but our adequacy or our competency comes from God. None of us have it enough of our own strength to do right, life right, whether it's our family, our business, or anything else apart from God. And He will let us come to the place where we finally realize that and now we're beginning to say, I can tap into his power because I recognize that I need it. And where do you need it? We need it for those dark valleys. We just need it for the day to day. Some of you are in dark valleys right now. Our family happens to be one with one of our kids in a very dark one. As we shared before, with 14 kids, we've had 11 years of bliss. And it's been wonderful. We've got grandkids. And even the one that's going through the pain is in, is, has a great love for Christ. But this is enormous, and if you pray for us, this is a very special week that, in that child's life, and I know you have them as well, so we'll pray for you. If you'd remember us, we would greatly appreciate it. Then the question is, who or what do we rely on in our inadequacies? Who do we rely on when things are going well? It should be the same answer. Is our God able to step in and make those needs? And you see, God's grace and His favor is designed for weakness. Where do we know that? Remember Paul had the thorn in his flesh and it was not his mother-in-law. And he said uh, three times he begged God to take it away. And God said, nope. And every time God said what? My grace is enough. My grace is sufficient for you. I'm not changing any circumstances, Paul. My grace is enough to handle your lousy condition. Tap into it. And then he said, I would much rather boast about my weaknesses. Why? That the power of God might be seen in me. You do not have power apart from the favor grace of God. That's why he'll say in Hebrews chapter 12, let your hearts be strengthened by grace. That's why he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.1, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Because strength and power flow from desperate hearts, from God's into our desperate hearts through his favor grace. And only those who admit their own weaknesses and their own limitations are going to know power and know great strength in a different way. Say strength for what? To keep on when you feel like quitting. 
Anybody here feel like quitting? Whether it's the family or your job or anything else? To make changes where we've tried and we haven't been able to make changes before. I want to. I know I should, but I can't. His favor, grace, invite him into that. To handle attacks and opposition that may come from family members or somebody else at work or even another believer. How do you handle that? The grace of God. And how to adapt. How to adapt when things are changing. And, and I didn't sign up for this. And, and, and the job is this way. And it's upside down compared to what it used to be. How do you adapt? Through the favor grace of God. But the question comes back to this. Is he able? And we can know how we answer that by how we question it. By my actions. Do I really believe God is able? Because if so, I'll run to him with whatever that issue is. Just like that. If I don't, I'm going to try to solve it myself. If I say, I'm going to handle this one, then it says, I don't, I don't have much confidence in God. Oh, I go to church. I heard him about him. He's, nice. He's a nice God, but what's he have to do with this? So who do you run to first determines how much you think God is able and how strong and how big and how gracious he is. If I run to my friends, if I run to the bottle, if I run to some escape, if I run to whatever else it is, do it myself, I, I don't really think God's got much. And the other one you, way you can know is, do I keep on praying? Oh, but I tried, prayed once, nothing happened. Now, isn't Jesus the one who said, keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking? He's the one who says, because power doesn't come necessarily the first, the first time you ask. Because prayer is not about changing the circumstances as much as it's about changing who? Us and our perspective. And so have I given up on prayer? Yeah, it's a nice thing to do at church and with your friends and before dinner. But do I seek God? Do I tell him how much I believe in him? And here's another thing. How about recruiting prayer? Do you recruit prayer for yourself and your family? One of the things that's been so great, and Caleb shared this morning about the men's ministry on Friday mornings. I mean, guys are have not only really bonded, but, but they're praying for each other. They're talking about their work and their families and and, and, hey, I got to get this out to other men in this community. Watch what God does as, we keep, as he keeps working in that whole thing. Who do you have you can go to that will pray with you? You have men. Do you have other brothers you can share whatever struggle in your life, whatever's ripping your gut apart, whatever temptation you're facing? We need that. It's available. Ladies, the same thing. You don't have to carry it alone. Who will pray with you? And if one of the things we can do to help leave some mark here at ABF is to have people bonded together, praying for each other, and what God wants in this world, praise Him. As we close, there's three families I want you to, just to think about for a moment. They all kind of live in the same area, same area, and the first family is a very gifted family. In fact, they've been very successful at life and in what the world calls successful. They live a, a, a great lifestyle, but they're a little bit different even though it's all they have, that they're a little different than the people around them because they realize that what they have has been given for great opportunities to help the world around them. And it started locally. They began, you know, doing things for neighbors and there was a single mom down the street. They reached out to her and that led from one thing to another and, and then they began to uh, hear about other areas and, and, and they started doing some things to reach their neighbors and the next thing you know, they decided one year in taking the family vacation, instead of going where they usually do overseas, they would go to a mission area. And the whole family went for a couple weeks. And they began to see 
orphans and they began to see the fact where the gospel hadn't been. And they began to say, you know what? Like even the kids came home and they said, you know what? Let's keep doing this. And as time went on, and even as they went to college, they went to other places and they chose their professions. Nobody knew about it much in the sense they didn't broadcast it. But they were serving, they were giving, and they were sharing their faith as they went along. There was another family that lived in the same area. They knew them. They also were gifted, but maybe not as much, maybe not quite as affluent as the first family. But they also had targeted their neighborhood. They began to love people. They worked in the yard with neighbors. They helped put in sprinkler systems. They began to help other people and just cared. And they got to, their family kind of became known in the neighborhood as people who, hey, come on over, let's do a barbecue. And they got involved with the, 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 the local rescue mission. And they began and, and did some short-term uh, uh, mission trips to Baja, California. And as time went on, they reached out and just it began to shape that whole family. There was a third family, lived in the area, they knew each other, they attended the same church, these three did, uh, at least the third one did sometimes. And you know, they were busy and just like the other families, their kids were involved in soccer and baseball and academics at school and music and all those things. But it seemed like this family never seemed to get outside of that much. And when it came time to do things, well, as the other families at times would sit down and say, what are we gonna do this year for God? How can we use our vacation time? How can we use our free time? And what are we going to read this year that seems to, to take us outside of what everybody else is doing and what God wants to do? This family never did that. And yeah, they even went to Christian camp once, and, but when they came home, it was all about us and, and our TV programs and video games and, and what we wanted to do, and it just kind of stayed like that until one day, life was over. And they stood before the one who made them. And he said to the first family, you knew why you were there. And it was fun to watch you grow in this whole thing. And it was fun to watch you from the first attempts and you didn't even know why, how you would serve me, but you made some attempts. And you did it first in the neighborhood and you did it in the local community, you went overseas and you kept doing this till the very end. And it says, I'm gonna double what I gave you to begin with. And they said to the second family, you guys took a little different route, but you ended up in the same place with hearts for God. You sat down, you planned months at a time, weeks at a time, a year at a time of what you're going to do as a family, how you could use your evening, how you could all earn up some money to help the single mom down the, the, down the, the house, uh, down the street, paint her house because it was coming apart. And you did some things in short-term missions and, you know, you, you used your life. You, you gave it away. I'm going to double what I was going to give you as well. He said to the third family, you know, you guys were busy. You had your kids involved in the same activities they did, and, and you know, but you had some opportunities, but it looks like here, you end up spending all your time on yourself. You spent your money on yourself. You didn't spend much time thinking at all about why I put you there. It was for me I put you there. I'm the one who gave you everything you had, but you spent it on yourself. And he says, we know it's going to cost you everything. You lost your lives. Now, some of you know I simply told Jesus' story in Matthew 25 with a family instead of individuals. Because, folks, one day we stand before the one who gave us everything. And he's going to say, why were you there? How did you use everything I gave you? It wasn't just for you. It was to bless the world. It was to represent me. It was to spread my kingdom. That's why you were there, to know me. And what he's saying to us today is the same thing now. 
It doesn't matter where we've been. What matters is the next step from here. Will we focus on our why? Will we spend the rest of our days praying over how do we do it for him? Whatever that means. Your family's going to be unique. Say, wait a minute, Pastor, my kids are grown and gone. Yeah, but you know what? You may have grandkids. And you still have opportunity to do it yourself now and even go back to those kids and say, you know what? I realize my model wasn't that great as a mom or dad. But I want you to know, would you pray for me? I want to spend my last years because I now know my why. And that's how I want to invest it. I think that pleases the heart of the master. Whatever you do, do it heartily. That's for him. And it's from him that you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for <clears throat> sending your son to tell us what life's all about. Thank you for not only helping us ask the question why, but for answering it. And today you know that there's some here going through some real challenging times. I pray for them. That you will take them and their broken hearts back to yourself. To discover in you what they've been looking for all along. Many of us are in the fast lane, Father. And we're going a million miles an hour. Not sure why. Help us to stop and ask why. And to hear your voice. And to pull off the road where necessary. To take time to just listen to you. There are those here who are confused. And maybe even regretful of the past. But thank you that we can start over with you. That you don't shame us. You don't, you don't find fault when we come to you. And you are the one who will restore us and put us on our feet. And so I pray that this day we would walk from here with a strong sense of why. That the atmosphere of our homes would be pointed toward a credibility of faith and love. And that we would tap into your power at every opportunity. So help us to answer the last question, how and when will I accomplish my map in 2012 for you? And as a church, we pray that you'll use us. We pray for the next pastor. And as we meet after this service to seek you together, Father, meet with us. Thank you that you've already gone before us. Thank you that you're the God who has a greater design for us than we could ever imagine. And thank you that you do more than all we can ask or think. I thank you for all that you did this week, even here on this campus. And we look forward to your good hand tomorrow. We give you great praise in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Hope you join us over here for prayer. Thank you for coming.